Um, Jupiter, thank you, man. It's been a privilege to uh, get to know you and what God has laid on your heart in terms of the calling, but it's also been beautiful. We get to be a part of something that is, um, what would you say, cross-Atlantic in terms of uh, God's work and, and whatnot. So um, who are we? We're just a little church on Walker and Benner, but God's orchestrating something all the way over in Africa such that it would glorify his name and seeing his kingdom realized on heaven as it is in earth. So beautiful stuff. Thank you, Jupiter, for, for sharing that. All right, now with the little bit of time that we have left, uh, Revelation chapter 19. And I want to just, as you're turning there, I want to remind you, what, maybe you sit back and you say, oh, oh, what happened this morning? This was a little different. This was good. This was fun, you know, hearing from all these different people. By the way, this is not new and this is not different. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul challenges the church in Corinth. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one, each one has a hymn, has a lesson, has a revelation, has a tongue. Uh-oh. Right? Has a tongue, has an interpretation. Well, and with it all, let all things be done for building up. The church, even in our Sunday gathering, should not just be one guy up front doing things. You come ready to contribute. It's a melting pot of grace that should be experienced when God's people come together. And that's what we get, got to participate in this morning. It's something perhaps that pastorally I would just encourage. Um, be thinking about how to contribute to this gathering. Right? As Sundays are coming and the family's getting together, what can I bring to the table? Right? If you get together with your family at any kind of uh, holiday season, you're saying, all right, well, who's got the potato salad? Right? Who's bringing the hot dogs? You know, what, what, what do we bring? And in a real sense, there is a spiritual meal to be had here as God's people gather. And it's to be thinking, all right, God, what do you have for me to bring to the family get-together this Sunday? that I can contribute. And just know that as we contribute, I'm just be straight, we're family, right? It's a fearful thing. I stand up here about to try to handle this text correctly with some fear and intrepidation. Some of it's good fear, some of it's bad fear. But the point is, is the only way that we can benefit from it is if I walk through that fear with faith, right? When you step out, I don't know if I have the words to say, and I don't know if it's going to go all right, all right, but we're stepping out in faith, trusting God's going to meet us here. Every one of the things that was shared is a step of faith. You're stepping through fear based upon faith. This is what God, I believe God has laid upon our heart. Let it now benefit the church. So, hey, if you sit back and maybe there's a Sunday that comes and you feel like the Lord's put something on your heart and you're just like, man, I don't know what to do with this. I feel the fear and maybe I should just wait. You know, those are the people that actually can get up in front of people and speak. They're just gifted that way. No, no, no. Right? We're not just gifted this way or whatever. It's that you need to step through that fear in order to benefit the body. Right? So as, as we typically do, all, all these folks came up to me earlier and just said, hey, can I share? Can I share? Can I share? And it's like, Scripture calls us to do things decently and in order, and that's part of the process, okay? Let's, let's be organized, but let's make sure this is a 
melting pot of grace. It's a feast of grace for our upbuilding. So just to encourage you, well done. God's glorified in all this. He's glorified. He is, he is pleased that you would step forward and give a word that would encourage his family, his people. Well done. All right. Uh, Revelation 19, and just before we read, next week, and this for some of you, if you haven't kind of been connected much, uh, might come as a shock, but we got baptisms next week. Uh, if you are interested in baptism, I'm, typically we, we have classes and all this kind of a bunch of prep stuff. I'm also not against the fact that we can, we can evaluate things fairly quickly. I want folks to know that if the Lord is impressing upon their heart the need to get baptized, that they should be faithful to walk that out. And there shouldn't be, i.e. the story of Philip, a whole lot of time uh, that we take to just slow things down and evaluate. We need to get to it. If the Lord is calling you to that, let's talk and let's get it in for, for next Sunday. So I don't know. Uh, we may be getting a trough out or something. We'll, we'll figure something out. Um, we're still trying to organize plans uh, for that. Yeah, we can, get, we can get the hose out. That's right, man. We can make it happen. So next week, uh, come ready for that. We... All right. All right. I didn't want to throw it at you without talking to you. <laughs> so, uh, all right. We'll, we'll chat and then announce what's, uh, what's happening for, for next week. But you can look forward to that. Um, yeah, there's more to say, but we got to get into it. All right. Revelation 19, uh, verses 11 through 21. Uh, we have already seen the downfall of Babylon, the prostitute. And now we see a, a kind of another layer to God's final work in redemptive history as he's bringing everything to a climax. He is now going after the beast and the false prophet. Next week we'll see that he goes after the dragon himself, the ancient serpent Satan. And most likely these uh, different uh, pictures into this final battle is probably just different perspectives of one great final showdown that takes place in redemptive history where God finally comes, Christ comes in power to judge the living and the dead. It would be what we refer to as the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, this is the, the final showdown in history before all things are made new. So Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw, John says, heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, I like that, multiple armies, armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. This is crazy imagery. 
Come gather to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in its presence who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Happy Sunday. Um, I think I think we need to be careful with a text like this, particularly as we just saw Psalm 50, that there are ver- various aspects to the character of our God. Um, but it is this particular characteristic of God that is highlighted in this text. That Jesus is one who is not some easygoing kind of pushover. He's not one who's just obligated to forgive you. He's not just one who kind of sits with the weak and the hurting. That is true. But he is one who ultimately will come, judge the living and the dead, and take all who reject him and destroy them. Um, man, with the time that I have, whatever. Um, so not too long ago, I got an email, right? Spam email, I think. Um, and it was all about, uh, sports gambling. So I clicked on it. Of course, would you? Yeah. Uh, you know, you you click on this thing. Okay. What what is this thing all about? It looks like it has some of my information. I, I better check this thing out. And it was so interesting. As I finally went on to the website, it seemed like a legit thing. You know, I went on to the website, and, and here's what they do. They, they ask you to throw in a few bucks, right? You know, send, send your money in, and, and, and then they give you, like, the, the whole schedule of whatever season. I, I was looking at basketball, of course, and, and so from, from game to game, you could wager, you know, who's winning and who's losing. But then they would give you all the statistics, of all the players and the momentum of each team and how things were going and the who's on the injured list and who's not, they'd, they'd weigh, they'd crunch the numbers all for you and then give this like weighing scale from you know green to this is like, you know, you're, you're gonna make some serious money off of this versus red, yeah, you probably don't wanna wager your money against this team because they're gonna absolutely lose, you know. So they give you all the statistics. What I do in my, my, my spare time, right? <laughs> now you know. No. Uh, so, but it was so interesting, right? You 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 get their information. You you kind of hedge your bets in in, in that sense, um, and then you know you you wait to see what happens. What will happen when it comes to the book of Revelation, and particularly these closing chapters? We have a final showdown, right? We see these cosmic scenes, this final battle, and, and, and we have in these chapters something of statistics, predicted outcomes. 
And as such, there is not simply a call to lay a few bucks on the line, but a call to lay your very life on the line. But the thing is, this is not just informed gambling. Let's see if this really happens. This is reasoned faith. For instance, the accounts in the book of Revelation stand on the fulfillment of countless prophecies that have been fulfilled in the past, particularly that of the person and work of Jesus, just for instance, then, that he would be born of a virgin, fulfilled, that he would be born in Bethlehem, fulfilled, that he would come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fulfilled, that he would be an heir to David's throne, fulfilled, that there would be a massacre of children at his birthplace, fulfilled, that he would ride into Jerusalem on a cult, fulfilled, that he would be rejected, fulfilled, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, fulfilled, that he would be crucified with criminals, fulfilled, that he would be given vinegar to drink, fulfilled, that he would be pierced in his side, fulfilled, that he would be buried with the rich, fulfilled, that he would be resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven, fulfilled. All of these predictions came some 400, 800, and 1,500 years before Christ ever stepped his foot onto earth. This is not informed gambling. This is reasoned faith. This is not the result of mathematical engines just kind of crunching numbers, weighing outcomes, but is a sovereign God having determined the end of history and providentially superintending the events of history to end in this particular way. It's not informed gambling. It's reason, faith, and it doesn't demand just a few bucks, but it demands your very life. That's the whole point of it. We get a view into the future, so to speak, to see what will happen ultimately so that we might surrender our lives to Christ's mercy rather than being destroyed in his wrath. We're given this prophetic outcome. We are given, if you will, some of the final statistics, the characteristics of Christ and his cosmic conquest, all that we also that we might give ourselves to his mercy rather than suffer his wrath. So let's consider the rundown, the statistics, in just a few minutes. Oh boy, this is so challenging. Uh, verses 11 through 16, we have 11 characteristics. <laughs> Let me see if I can summarize a little bit of this. Um, the statistics, the characteristics of the Christ, verses 11 through 16. Uh, in verse 11, John sees heaven open. Jesus is riding on a what? What color? White horse, all right? You, you watch a Western movie, who's the guy who rides on the white horse? He's the good guy, and he's the guy who's going to eventually win. Right? He's the guy who always wins. And in a real sense, this is the imagery represented here. The guy who rides on the white horse. He is the good guy. And he is the one who ultimately will conquer. Jesus, if we can get theological, Jesus is the second Adam. He is the righteous one. He is the good one who didn't and he won't 
fold to Satan's temptations and schemes, but he stood faithful, did he not, through his life and ministry. He stood faithful to his father, even unto death, thereby providing salvation for all who would call upon him for it. But while in humility he came, riding that colt into Jerusalem as an act of, yes, humility, he rides this war horse into the final event of history to conquer. He will win. He is good, he is righteous, but he will win. This is a war horse. It's all to recognize that some people have the wrong view of Jesus. Some people have the idea of Jesus from, from the pastel paintings, or perhaps the statutes of Jesus, you know, just folding his hands and looking helplessly up into heaven. Not this Jesus. He is a warrior, and he has come to dominate his foe. And folks, this is good for us when we've known the pain of this world, when we've known something of the injustice of this world, it's good to know that the good guy is coming and he's coming to conquer. He's coming to deal with all that is wrong. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus comes to make war. His name, verse 11, is what? What do you see? The one sitting on the horse, faithful and true. Okay. Every leader that seems to be in some position of power in our nation and beyond, haven't you heard the phrase, just trust me, just trust me, just trust, and immediately there's skepticism. I know not to trust him, but he's asking me to trust him. You know that something's off when it's just trust me. Oh, boy, like who can trust you? In, in this day, social media and all the different uh, ways in which journalism has kind of like made a mess of itself. It's all about the headlines, enhancing the headlines. It's all about getting the followers and the attention. And so we'll do anything to turn the situation to just make it something that's appealing, almost entertaining to the masses. And therefore, we never know what is ultimately true, it seems, right? We're always wondering, is this true? Do we have all the facts here? And so this is why we go through COVID and we got people on this side of the aisle and people on that side of the aisle, both giving us as pastors different uh, articles that stand directly against one another. I don't know what to believe. I have no idea. They both seem right, but they can't both be right. What in the world? It's a mess in our day. And everyone's looking for truth, 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 truth. Jesus' very name is faithful and true. The idea of faithful, he will never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been that way, he is always that way now, he will forever be that way, and he's true. He's the very embodiment of truth. If you want to know what's true, look to Jesus. It doesn't mean that all the stuff in our, or our culture and our world and all those articles aren't meaningful. I'm not saying that, I'm just saying don't set your hopes on an article. Don't set your hopes on journalism. Don't set your hopes that you're going to hear the, all the facts of every little story. 
There is one who knows the facts of the story, and he is one who is faithful and true. He's the one that we ultimately look to. And isn't it good that the one who is faithful and true is the one who comes, as verse 11 says, in righteousness to judge and make war. He's going to set everything right. The one who should be setting everything right. Faithful and true. But then verse 12, we get another statistic, another characteristic of who he is. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This is a reference that goes back to the description of the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 10 as well. It's referenced of Jesus in chapter 1. It's referenced of Jesus when it exhorts the church of Thyatira in chapter 2 verse 18. But in every one of those moments, the context is where God's people have actually been seduced. And so the one who has eyes like flame of fire, the idea is kind of like the X-Men Cyclops. If you know those, or, or Superman, right? I got Hayden's like, yep, yep, got it, right, right? So the laser beams come flying out, and what does it do? It cuts down all the stuff. And really what these, these eyes do is they can burn right through all the external facade. Oh, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm moral, I'm put together, and it gets all the way down to the reality of the heart. He sees your motives, he knows your desires, he knows the stuff of your heart, not just the the facade. He knows, as Jesus would even say when it comes to the, the Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, you're death on the inside. Your emptiness, your brokenness. You think you're something. He has eyes like a flame of fire. The idea is from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, that nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is Jesus. He knows not just the facade. He knows the reality of the heart. On his head are many diadems in verse 12. Just remember, again, to get a little theological, when Adam fell, he surrendered authority to the enemy. Adam and Eve, you know the story. They eat the fruit, right? They begin to co-labor with the enemy. It's why Satan will tempt Jesus with the nations of the world in Luke chapter 4. As Revelation 12, verse 3 says, the dragon, the serpent, has diadems. And it's not just that he's trying to be a counterfeit Jesus, it's that he holds sway, as 1 John would say, he is the God of this world. He has a level of authority at work within this world. He carries sway over the nations to work his schemes through the beast, through the false prophet, through Babylon, the prostitute. But since now Jesus has become the true second Adam, because he has given his life and now been raised and ascended to the right hand of God, he now carries the sole right to rule over creation and thereby the sole right to renew it. He's crowned with many crowns, with many diadems. He now holds ultimate authority. In verse 12, he has a name written that no one knows. In other words, there's something yet to be revealed of who Jesus is that only in judgment will we understand. His names reveal who he is. 
and yet there's something yet known. We have never seen the totality of this kind of judgment, the comprehensiveness of this kind of judgment. There is a name which stands still mysterious because we still have not seen the full beauty, the full power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He has a name written no one knows. He also then is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Why does he have a robe dipped in blood? That same question is raised in Isaiah chapter 63. Let me just read it for you. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Know this about Jesus. When he showed up by way of a virgin, there was a pre-incarnate Christ who had already been at war. He had already begun to bring destruction upon his enemies. This is a reference to those who he took down in the Old Testament flood, or Pharaoh in his army that he took down by way of the Red Sea, or those who fell in the wilderness journey for their unbelief, or the nations that fell in conquest of the Promised Land, This is a reference, this robe dipped in blood is a reference to the commander of the Lord's army from the account of Joshua chapter 5. Do you remember? Joshua encounters this heavenly man and he's, he's standing there with a sword that has been drawn and Joshua's first you know, response to this is whose side are you on? Are you with us or are you against us? And the commander of the Lord's army turns the question around on Joshua. I'm not serving you, you are serving me. The question is, Joshua, whose side are you on? This robe dipped in blood is actually a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, I believe. Jesus has already been working his justice in the world throughout the ages. And the idea is he is coming again to bring final vengeance. And still then the question that should fall upon our hearts is, are we ready to bow the knee to his mercy? Or will we suffer his wrath? Will you just be a stain upon his uniform? Or will you be covered by the blood of his cross? But furthermore, Jesus, we're getting more statistics. Think about the backside of a baseball card. You had all the statistics of the particular players. That's what we're going through. We're just going through the list of all that Jesus is. Verse 13, he's called the Word of God. In John's Gospel, remember, John's writing Revelation. He's already written a Gospel. John breaks out in chapter 1, referring to Jesus as the Word of God. Jesus is referred to as the Logos. The Logos is that which created equilibrium. You think of ballast in a boat. A boat sets upright. I've given the illustration before of the toy boat, you know, that kept falling over in the tub, you know, and it's like, why won't this stupid thing stand up? But it needed counterbalances, ballast. It needs some weight in the bottom of it in order to put it right so it could catch wind. 
The idea here is just that. It's an equilibrium. He's the greater weight of glory that sets everything in this creation back into its intended place. He is the logos. He is the word. He is the equilibrium of our lives. Again, the question then still stands, will we give ourselves to his mercy, to his healing, or will we be finally destroyed by the word of God? He will, he will bring order to this world, either through mercy or through wrath. There's no in-between. That's the whole point of the text. And it all comes down to what will you do with Jesus? Verse 14, next. This is the eighth characteristic statistic. He is followed by the armies of heaven who are arrayed in white. The armies of heaven are probably both saints and angels. They're arrayed in white, which means they, they, they carry the color of their leader. Right? They, color some, they carry something of his goodness, of his conquest. They're riding with him. And the idea then is that Jesus is acting to vindicate all those who are following him. He's conquering not just for his own sake and his own name, but he's conquering for those who now have fallen. He's conquering for the sake of vindicating all those who have been crying out, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord. And folks, I don't know about you, but... While, while that question rings from the altar of the throne room of heaven in the book of Revelation, it's no less something that is heard by God from us here and now. Lord, how long? How long? But he's the one who's coming to vindicate us. Don't give in to the pressures of the world. It is Christ who we must keep our eyes upon. One day we will, so to speak, follow him as the armies of heaven, but it's no less even today that our lives must be aligned with him, following the one who leads us. Next then, by striking down the nations with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth and by ruling the nations with a rod of iron. This is how he's going to be coming to vindicate those who follow him, sharp sword coming out of his mouth, a rod of iron in his hand. He will but, the idea is, he will but speak and his enemies will fall. The rod of iron is probably a shepherd's staff, but it's made out of iron, so it's being used to protect his sheep. And so Christ is acting with this arsenal. Isn't it something? He's not coming all armored. He's not coming in Humvees. He's not coming in body armor, helmets, and all this kind of stuff. He's, not, he's got nothing defensive. Why? Because his power stands. His authority stands. Just by his word, is Martin Luther's song, right? Mighty Fortress. One little word will fall his enemy. Jesus comes with a sharp sword, with a rod of iron in his hand. And then finally, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Embroidered, embroidered on his robe, if you will, tatted on his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, right? And the idea of the thigh is the thigh represented the strength of a man, but not just his physical strength, but his character, 
It was his integrity. So in the Old Testament, it was all about you made a deal with one another instead of shaking hands. It's weird, I know. You put your hand on one another's thigh. Because we're trusting in the character, the strength of our integrity with one another. Therefore, promises would be made in Jesus. <laughs> he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's tatted on his thigh. right? And that name, King of kings and Lord of lords, originally comes from Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar has just come out of his beastly activity, right? It's, it's, he's exalting in himself, right? It's all about him. It's all about his nation. It's all about his accomplishment. And when we exalt in ourselves, we become beastly. We become less human. And so God then brings judgment upon him, discipline upon him. He becomes beastly. He's running through the fields, right? His nails are growing like the claws of an eagle. But then he finally comes to his senses and how does he respond to Yahweh God? He calls him king of kings and lord of lords. It's all again intended to kind of bring this, this, this pressure, and healthy pressure to our hearts. Will you bend the knee before him or will you suffer his judgment? Will you humble yourself like King Nebuchadnezzar? Or will you rage in your beastly activity until Christ's judgment ultimately takes you? He is king of kings, and he is lord of lords. Now again, I don't know what view of Jesus you have, whether it's from you know, the goofy paintings that we have or the statues that you've seen or maybe frustrating experiences within different churches that you've gone to, but here are scripture's characteristics of Christ, and as such, he doesn't demand some sort of half-cocked spiritualism from you. In this Western world, we have plenty of that. Just, just take Jesus by name, add him to the pantheon of your idolatry. Just have this kind of wishy-washy spirituality at play in your life. You're good. Jesus is one who is to be in a right way, in a healthy way, feared. Do you fear him? I think in our Western world, I don't know about you, but I can easily forget who he is. I can easily just kind of revert always to the cross, always think, well, no big deal. I can almost become apathetic by thinking he's obligated to forgive. He's obligated to give me grace if I screw up, so what's, what's the point of trying? Wrong view. He gives you mercy, he gives you grace, not so that you would just make excuses for yourself, but he gives you mercy, he gives you grace to empower you into his likeness, right? With that mercy and with that grace, there should be an attending fear that says, oh man, I must give myself to him. Even as was said earlier, it's, it's the fear that even my children have of me at times. Sometimes I wrongly provoke that fear, but other times it's the right fear where they see dad coming, they know they've done wrong, and they're running. That's not a bad thing. I tell my kids oftentimes after I've disciplined them, I do this because I love you. I want you to see clearly between what is right and what is wrong. And as a dad, it's my responsibility to remind you of that. 
because the way of the fool is the way of ultimate destruction. I don't want, if we go to the book of Proverbs, I don't want my kids to be fools. I don't want them to just kind of take any kind of word from the world. I don't want them to just kind of giggle and laugh at things that are wrong and evil. I want them to have a true sobriety. I want them to think of dad when they make decisions. Right? To think twice. Folks, the same point here. Are we thinking twice about our Lord, our Savior? He has grace and mercy. He is tender in all that he is, but he is also a just judge who will come. Bring judgment upon all who reject him. All right, so that's Jesus. Happy picture of Jesus. I know, I see the time. You guys are kind. Second, and I'll make this one brief, I promise. You have the statistics of Christ, but then you have the statistics, if you will, the characteristics of his conquest. The first thing, that check out verse 17, just real brief. There's an angel standing in the sun, loud voice. He calls to the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. Have you ever been out deep sea fishing? You start going out there, and who's following you? The seagulls, the birds, are they're following. They instinctively know, follow the boat, right? Because what's going to happen? Well, like, they're looking for a slaughter to take place. They're looking for some fish to be caught and, and any kind of, you know, extras that they can pull from the water. They're going for it. This is an intimidating picture. There is an invitation to birds who are already flying overhead, this army. Think about standing opposite side of this massive army arrayed in white, and above them is this, this cloud of birds of prey. You could hear the flapping of their wind like thunder. And the birds are following this army because they instinctively know that this army dominates. There is a supper, a great supper awaiting. There is a slaughter to be enjoyed. That's a vicious, <laughs> a vicious picture. But that is, that is the idea that those who stand in resistance of Jesus, they need to take this to account. Jesus isn't messing around. Jesus will say, if you're not for me, you're against me. No neutral ground. None of this wishy-washy, I think I'm in, I think I'm not in, I don't know. Uh, it, it's not about, he's, you're either against me or you're for me. And he will bring judgment. And what we see then is not only these birds of prey overhead invited to this great supper of God, but then also it is comprehensive judgment. Just, just notice what the text says in verse 18, it involves captains, it involves kings, it involves mighty men, it involves the horses, the riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. Again, there's no kind of in-between here. There's no neutral ground. There's no kind of like foot in, foot out here. There's no one who, oh, oh, I'm just, I'm just a small peddler on the evil side. Uh, no, you, you're going to get it too. There will be a final day. If you're not with Christ, you stand against him, and you'll pay. 
It's comprehensive. And it's conquest. Finally, then, he takes down the beast and the false prophet. These schemes, these religious political schemes within our world will be finally and fully taken down. Where you sit back and you watch the news and you see the political stuff happening, all that junk will finally be revealed for what it truly is. The one with eyes like fire will finally cut down through all the crap, if you will, and get to the issues of men's hearts, where they truly stand, what they're truly accountable for. And Jesus, the one who sees the hearts, will bring final and full judgment to these systems, to these powers at work within the world. I got to toss this in there just before we close. What this text means to us today cannot mean something other than what it meant to the seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Does that make sense? What this text means here cannot mean for us what it didn't mean for them. And the seven churches, as we went through them months ago, were suffering from Roman oppression, worship the emperor or die. There's the beast. It's persecution. Or it would be these trade guilds. You couldn't get work unless you were willing to follow these pagan ways, which oftentimes involved uh, different ceremonials, sexual immorality, all just a mess of stuff. So you couldn't even get, uh, you know, can't even get a good salary without being deceived and giving yourself away to that which was wrong. And then there is synagogues of Satan, these Jewish deceivers. Then there's the spirit of Jezebel who comes and threatens the church as well. It's It's this threat to say, hey, why don't you just give in to the sexuality ethic of the day? And Jesus comes in and he's saying, don't don't allow the beast to have a hold on your life. Don't allow the false prophets and all the deception to have a hold on your life. Endure well knowing that one day I'm showing up and I'm dealing with it all. The birds will be gorged with their flesh. Don't compromise. Don't give up the faith. Don't give in. And isn't Jesus good to serve us all the way through it? He's our great intercessor. He has mercy for us. He has grace for us. He has all of this for us so that we don't give in. And even when we do, even when we screw up, I will, you will, we'll be there. He has grace and mercy for you. Continue to endure well. Don't get off the bandwagon. Don't fall into shame. Don't get down on yourself and self-pity. The enemy will work that way whenever you screw up. He'll throw it in your face. The call is, no, get yourself back to church. Get yourself back in community. Get your nose back in the word. He has mercy for you again. He has mercy for you again. He has mercy for you again. And he has the grace for you to endure. So once again, you stand on his side and not on the side that will be destroyed. You may, now now finally, you may listen to this and say, man, I don't like this Jesus. Give me that guy on the cross, right? If that's the way you see it, then you don't understand the cross. Just give me that guy who sacrificed for others, who died that terrible death on the cross. Don't give me this guy who rides in glory and victory and 
brings destruction upon all of those. If, if that's your take on Jesus, you, you got it wrong. You don't understand the cross. Remember that the cross is all about saving you, not first from Satan's wrath, but from God's wrath. The good news is all about Jesus saving us from God's wrath to God's mercy. So that an enemy, well, I'm pretty good though. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not a Hitler. I'm not a, yeah, stop weighing your, your spiritual condition by one another and start weighing it before your God who is holy. You ain't good, even if you think you're good. You're an enemy against him. Well, I wouldn't call myself an enemy. It's what God calls you if you don't have Jesus. And it's why Jesus suffered on the cross for you. He took that wrath upon himself. He became the enemy, if you will. He bore the penalty of our sin. What we deserve was placed upon him so that we might know mercy. Jesus didn't just do a nice little thing. He didn't just go about destroying the works of the enemy. He did. But first and foremost, that cross is all about Jesus satisfying the wrath of God so you might know now and forever God's mercy. That's the beauty of the cross. That's the wonder of the cross. I don't care how good you think you are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No exceptions. No neutral ground. We all wear the black hat. We all ride the black horse, if you will, in this day. Jesus alone is good. Jesus alone is right. Jesus alone is faithful and true. And he's the one who, again, took upon him the wrath we deserved so we might know his mercy and not find ourselves at this end, suffering from his judgment. Isn't that beautiful? Gory pictures, but a beautiful Savior. He's the one who's worthy to be worshipped. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the mercy that we can know. God, I pray for anyone right here, right now, who finds themselves in a place of uh, feeling as though they messed up this past week or this past month or the last couple months where they, they, they haven't been walking close to you but have kind of given up in some sense on the mercy and grace that you've extended to them. Lord, let the enemy not have their mind and hearts right now. That would cause them to think of, of, of just self-pity and woe is me, but that they would see the beautiful Savior who tends to his own with gentleness and care, with mercy and love, with, again, powerful grace to see sin undone in their lives. So, God, we thank you. Jesus, it's a beautiful picture. But we also then pray, oh God, that you would give us a healthy fear of who you are, that we would tremble at your name as the one who is ultimate and true, the one who will bring ultimate judgment upon all. God, let it provoke our hearts, perhaps, to go share the good news with others. Jesus, you haven't returned. This final day has not happened yet, and therefore, these are days of mercy. These are days of salvation. These are days where the gospel gets to be sown, where hearts get to be changed, where people get to be delivered. 
So God, may it be that through your church, many would come to know you, trust in you. God, awaken the eyes of those who may be even listening uh, to this today, that their eyes would be open to the truth of who you are. We, we pray against the schemes of the enemy who would want to put the false prophet's agenda in their mind. They would then be confused as to who you are and what you've ultimately done for them. So God, let your salvation be known today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
decision to follow Jesus through baptism, and so I want to honor him and honor the Lord as he surrounds us next week, and anyone else who joins. So that being said, guys, I want to read the benediction from June 24th. It says, Now to him, Jesus, the faithful and true one, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time.